This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Live once again from Dragon Meat in Hammersmith, London. Bandwidth. And travel considerations brought to you by Pelgrane Press. We're here to rumple the edges of your 20-pound notes in our North American wallets. And depending on what you ask us to discuss tabletop and adventure gaming. Cinema. Time travel. Tulpas. Occultism. Real life depleting its stability pool. And of course, food. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R or leave immediately for your local game store before it's taken over by the hated British. Now, were this a, uh, a studio episode, we would uh, proceed to do uh, patron shoutouts, but we're here uh, in the presence, hopefully, of some uh, Patreon backers. Are there backers in the house? Identify yourselves. Everyone else, applaud these people. Applaud these heroes. Applaud. Uh, without them, this podcast would have to go to a farm to run and play. Uh, those of you who are familiar with our live episode format uh, know that we start off by challenging the febrile brain of my uh, partner here uh, with the Nerd Trope deck. And now we have the uh, original creator of the Nerd Trope deck here in front of us. And so, Kala, please step forward and draw a nerd card and a trope card for Ken to divigate upon. The nerd card is Stalin, everyone. <laughs> Big nerd. And Atlantis! Stalin and Atlantis, ladies and gentlemen. All right. There's a couple of different ways we can go with this. To begin with, we know, of course, that Stalin was from Georgia, uh, the ancient Colchis, uh, from uh, Greek mythology, the land at the one end of the world, the eastern end of the world, where the uh, dragon guarded the magical tree with a golden fleece on it, as opposed to the western end of the world, the islands of the Hesperides, or as we like to call them, the remainder of Atlantis, or America, depending on how you do it, how you do it where a dragon guarded the golden apples of the Hesperides, thus creating a circle, if you will, like the Okeanos that circles the world, or like a dragon, or any number of things. Stalin, of course, from Georgia, from Colchis, has this innate knowledge, this uh, lust for Atlantean power, the kind of thing that 
causes Zeus to smite you and sink your whole continent, just boiling up in his blood, possibly a little of that Medea poison working its way through, can't say, wouldn't want to say. When he rises to power, one of the things that he does, interestingly enough, is sponsor a series of expeditions into inner Asia, into uh, Mongolia and parts thereof, uh, by a series of occultists who were left over from Lenin's regime. Gleb Boki, who ran uh, the uh, uh, Black Chamber, the sort of uh, cryptanalysis section for the Bolsheviks, was also, as cryptanalysts tend to be with alarming regularity, an occultist. And his, uh, I don't know if he was his mentor, he was his buddy, let's call him his mentor, Alexander Barchenko, who is referred to as the Red Merlin by people who like to say things. Um, <laughs> my buddy Ryan Macklin said, but no one ever calls Merlin the Blue Barchenko, do they? So, true uh, on that. Anyway, um, uh, Barchenko is uh, basically tasked to find uh, what is uh, called, uh, depending on how you, uh, you know, which, which version of it you read, uh, Shambhala, uh, White Shambhala, uh, Beloyavora, or uh, White Atlantis. The notion that Atlantis is not an island at the far west of the world, but an island in the middle of the Gobi Desert at the far east of the world. Again, a mystical mirror to Colchis, where Stalin, of course, is from. Got all that uh, dragon poison in him. So, Barchenko, Nicholas Rorick, the um, uh, uh, mystically-minded theosophist artist, is sent out there at the same time by Vice President Henry Wallace, who, you know, sad to say, was a communist. Um... Uh, also looking for this same uh, uh, Shambhala uh, phenomenon, this uh, mystical island uh, hovering over a desert, a desert, the kind of thing that might be left after, I don't know, the gods smote you for being a bunch of Stalins. And then purges Boki, purges Barchenko, kills them all off in the 36. So uh, obviously what happened is they found something. They found Atlantis, and Stalin's like, uh, guess what? Uh, the only way the secret of Atlantis they is safe... Uh, if, Stalin, Stalin, there are only three of us who know where Atlantis is. <laughs> and Stalin is saying, let's round that down. <laughs> so Stalin found Atlantis in 36, 37, thereabouts, and had in his possession the island of mystical power there in the center of uh, the Mongolian desert, uh, possibly connected to the Black Stone of Chintamani, although that would be irresponsible occultist speculation, and I won't get into it here. <laughs> but um, uh, used the power of Atlantis to cement his reign, massive human sacrifices, the whole nine yards, getting ready to uh, challenge the gods, and then, wouldn't you know it, World War II breaks out. Desperately trying to keep the Japanese away from Atlantis, uh, Stalin is very worried that uh, the Japanese are going to do what they did again in the 20s, uh, invade Siberia, uh, try and cut the Trans-Siberian Railway, possibly try their own mystical explorations for Atlantis. The Japanese have their own situation going on with the Genyosha, uh, the Black Ocean Society. Let's see, what would a Black Ocean maybe be covering? I don't know, Atlantis? Would it be the Gobi Desert? The Karakota? The Black Desert? Maybe. Uh, the Black Ocean is a desert? Could be. Again, irresponsible speculation. Shouldn't make it. Um, but he's worried about the Japanese, so in order to keep them out of his hair... Uh, he basically buys them off. He says, um, uh, you get a free hand against the West. I'm not going to do anything to you. You guys don't do anything to me. Everyone's copacetic. 
We're all just going to agree to disagree. Fortunately, Zhukov has you know, put a little uh, mail behind that fist at Nomanhan. The Japanese don't want to try uh, military conclusions without him without knowing where Atlantis is. So everyone agrees to play nice. Meanwhile, Hitler, of course, has heard all about Atlantis because Hitler. Um, he's got his Ananerba out there Atlantising it up, looking in the Azores, looking in Greenland, looking in Iceland, looking in Finland. Finland, not really where I would go to look for Atlantis, but hey, I'm not Hitler. Um, and discovers, of course, the secret of Kolkis, that that's where you can go to get to Atlantis, or at least that that's where the first, uh, the, the, or the final seeds of the Atlantean god-hating uh, uh, energies uh, siphled down. So what does he do? Of course, he invades Russia, tries to get all the way across Russia, deep into the Caucasus Mountains in uh, 1942, rather than uh, uh, once a more attempt to attack Moscow, he drives for the Caucasus. The surface story is he's going after the oil. The oil, of course, is um, black, and it's buried underneath something. Uh, probably not a connection. Anyway, so he's uh, heading for Kolkis, but the, um, uh, the, the, the Wehrmacht is stopped uh, by, um, uh, perhaps by magic, perhaps by the fact that it was led by a bunch of chumps, perhaps by the fact that Hitler was in charge of it. Who can say? But um, uh, Stalin, again, sacrifices a million men to keep the Wehrmacht out of uh, Georgia, Operation Uranus. It is an operation that is so secret that it only came out after um, uh, an American uh, military historian named Glantz uh, looked into the Russian archives and said, holy crap, there was a whole million-man operation on the Eastern Front that we've never heard of, uh, Operation Uranus. We know about Operation Saturn because that was the actual cutting off of uh, Georgia, but Uranus was the attack from the north into uh, the German forces that just a million people dead. Um, Uranus, of course, uh, god of the sky, famously overthrown, um, uh, famously castrated. Um, goodness me, what was he castrated? Oh, it was a sickle. It was a sickle, was it not? Hammer and something. Anyway, um, Operation Uranus kills another million men, once more charging up that Atlantis power. The Operation Saturn, the guy who cut off Uranus, is the next one around. That cuts off the, um, uh, the, the Nazis. Perhaps we're talking about a mystical sacrifice to set up a mystical sacrifice, a one-for-one -one trade, if you will. He'll trade a million men to kill a million Nazis. Seems fair, uh, certainly if you're not in the million. Um, uh, Hitler is defeated, falls back, blah, 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 Berlin falls. Uh, Stalin now, end of the war, he's there. He's got Atlantis. The Japanese uh, stayed uh, cowed. Um, uh, once the Americans started dropping A-bombs, he, he charges into Manchuria, uh, makes eyes at uh, Hokkaido. Uh, no one uh, says boo to Mongolia. He's sitting on top of the world. Um, he's right up there. Uh, got himself Atlantis, uh, ready to use his Atlantean mojo on um, uh, America. Except, remember what I said about those islands of the Hesperides? Remember how they got their own dragon? Remember how they got their own golden apples? Remember how uh, Atlantis is, oh, that's right, it's America. Oh, I'm sorry, Stalin. Two Atlantises, no room. <laughs> so, uh, the, the sort of the realization that he has got exactly half of the double Atlantis, uh, causes him to go a little uh, bananas, starts seeing plots everywhere, uh, begins what he calls the doctor's plot to, to slaughter uh, everyone who said boo to him the last time, and then mysteriously dies, uh, despite being from Georgia, famously long-lived people, lived to 110 even today, he dies, he, you know, kicks off just like that, just like someone turned his lights out, just like someone gave him, what's that, a stroke? What's a stroke? Is it an electrical discharge in the brain? Who is it that's in charge of electrical discharges and hates Atlantis? That's right. Good old Zeus. There you go. That's what happens. So, lesson to you kids. When you get Atlantis, make sure it's the right one. The American one. Right.
Have you, as an avid Canon Robin listener, inexplicably failed to fill your hard drive with Dracula dossier? Never fear, for until December 27th, the epic Knights Black Agents campaign by Canon Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is now in the bundle of holding, at an unbelievably low price. A price so low, it can't see itself in the mirror. Get the bargain price player's collection to score PDFs of Dracula Unredacted, the Edom Field Manual, and the complete Knights Black Agents core book. How did Pelgrane ever allow that? Pay more than the average price to get every blood-drenched, wheel-squealing Dracula dossier product. $119 retail value for like 75% off? 10% of your payment goes to the charity chosen by Pelgrane Press, V-Day, a global activist movement to end violence against women and girls. But move fast, because a couple of days after Christmas, this deal's enemies will find its safe house and take it out for good. So, the rest of this uh, event will be dedicated to questions. So, uh, stand up and boldly speak your question, and then we will attempt to remember, despite the uh, ineluctable temptation of comic timing, to repeat the question before going on to answer it. And the rest of you, uh, please pay attention, and for the benefit of the listeners at home later, if we forget to rephrase the question, shout out, rephrase rephrase the the question. question. Okay, try... Put more into it this time. There we Thank go. You. Okay, so who is the, uh, the first question uh, for us this time? What elements from Jack Kirby's fourth age would you bubble up into your 13th age game, and why? So what, what elements of Jack Kirby's uh, fourth world would uh, we allow to bubble up into a 13th age game? Um, I'm running a 13th age game with a non-standard icon set. So what I imagine you would want to do is probably, or what I would want to do, I don't know about other people, but I would want to sort of um, sky over and take a, a little of the old uh, Jack Kirby Eternals, the sort of the, the mega gods that lie sleeping underneath South America and all that. I mean, it's Crazy Kirby is roughly Crazy Kirby. And uh, whether he is Metron or whichever of the Eternals it is, it's all, they're all good. Um, so I would probably mix and match amongst the Kirbys that uh, seem most best and have them be the, the icons, and then have the various Kirby icons be attempting to make their Kirby continuity the Kirby continuity. So the Eternals and Darkseid and um, uh, uh, Galactus, maybe, and uh, the, the Black Racer and all these other guys are sort of out there. The Kirbyverse somehow is the one with the juice to happen. And I don't know if I'd set it in the sort of the 70s, the sort of high second Kirby era. That would be almost too tempting, is to have sort of a uh, ongoing, like a secret war where you're playing 13th Age and you're just wandering around stabbing people um, uh, with your weapons because that's how you do things in Kirby. And, you know, you, uh, basically you, you have a pistol as a crossbow and bam, 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 and then you're slaughtered because you're just a guy with a pistol, like a dumbass. And then um, uh, the, the various uh, dudes are all these sort of secret icons, that, and, and half the game is tracking them down and figuring out who the other icons are. Yeah, so the, the fourth world, notoriously, uh, is the Marvel Universe has been destroyed in Ragnarok, and Stan Lee presumably has had a, a stake put through his heart. Um, and, and then the, uh, the fourth world is uh, what rises from the ashes of that. I think there's even a panel where uh, Thor's hammer or Captain America's shield uh, shows up. So I would uh, piggyback on that and uh, have... Uh, just the way that in GURPS Fantasy 2, the <coughs> evil gods are A.A. Milne's classic children's characters, that the uh, players would only slowly over time 
discover that the, uh, the new 13 icons were all detourned versions of the classic Marvel characters, all gone uh, weird and evil. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there'd be, uh, you know, the star would be one of them, and you would gradually realize, oh, wait, that's Captain America uh, in a, some new weird version. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Archmage, of course, would be Stephen Strange, and you would slowly discover uh, that they were the sort of dead and then resurrected uh, iconic Marvel characters. And then as soon as you uh, discovered that, uh, sort of all of the wrappings of all of the creatures, you know, the orcs would suddenly be revealed to be the, the scrawl and so forth. And, uh, and it's, uh, once they finally discovered that and wrapped it all up and you just, you, uh, you know, you find the big cosmic button and the players would get to decide whether to take the hammer that they've discovered and put together back into pieces. And do they use the hammer to hit the big cosmic Kirby button with the two-page spread and turn everything back into a fantasy world? Or do they like the fact that they're in a weirdo version of the Marvel Universe? Because if they don't hit it, you know, it might turn into just the, you know, I don't know, the, the uh, ultimate verse or the, the, uh, the, the MCU or something. Right. Uh, next question. Other than your own games, of course, uh, what have been the best Rockman games you've played over the past year? Uh, I don't play any. Uh, so the question is, what are the uh, I, 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 other than my own games? Uh, what are our favorite ones we played or, uh, over the last year? And the answer is, I don't have time to run other people's games. I got Yellow King to put out, man. I mean, I'm running Thirteenth Age, and that's what I've been running for most of the last year. Before that was Unknown Army's Second Edition, which uh, I haven't played Third Edition, so this is not a diss on Third Edition because I'm sure 3rd edition has even more wonderful stuff in it. Unknown Army's 2nd edition was my second favorite role-playing game of all time. So uh, that anytime I'm running Unknown Armies is, is one of my favorite games, and I'm really enjoying 13th Age. So they're not uh, my games by any stretch of the imagination, although by the time I get finished messing with them, they're indistinguishable from my games. Um, uh, like my 13th Age game is set in Hellenistic, uh, the Hellenistic Mediterranean, which is not, I think, the canonical setting. Um, but it lets me do, uh, lets me be me, man. That's all I'm saying. So uh, to the extent that Rob and Jonathan's game run by me in a real history setting with magic and anime is <laughs> Rob and Jonathan's game, 13th Age. <laughs> Next question. Was it an official use of your time machine to set up Cambridge Analytica, or were you just testing out conspiracies in a real-life environment? So the question is... Uh, did you use the time machine to set up Cambridge Analytical, or was it a test of the conspiracy system in a real-life environment? Um, it uh, was a test because um, uh, the uh, uh, time machine is not necessary to establish uh, scammers who lie to politicians. <laughs> that is an ongoing and proud industry. Um, uh, it, it's sort of like uh, the, the circle of life, you know, lie around to lie. And uh, just like um, people who are... Uh, uh, prone to feeding on uncertainty and fear are themselves the most prone to uncertainty and fear. Uh, similarly, uh, a, a firm that comes and says, we're going to take all the guesswork out of electioneering um, and, and solve your problems for you is exactly what politicians who know that's a lie when they say it to their constituents want to believe. And I think we can all uh, agree that Cambridge Analytica, if it was all that in a bag of chips, would have gotten Ted Cruz nominated because that's who they were working for to begin with. Uh, so maybe 
someone's number was off by a couple of decimal places, or maybe all they were doing is just reworking Facebook data. Right. The question, we can have Cambridge Analytica, or we can just give Jared Sergey's email address. Yeah. <laughs> that, seems, seems just as simple one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, next question. Uh, what beer with which Star Trek? <laughs> <laughs> That, that, by the way, for those listening at home, is golf applause. Yeah. <laughs> that's how good that applause was. Yeah. Uh, that's, Cal of Tate uh, asks, what beer with which Star Trek? Uh, or or what beer, which beer with what Star okay. Trek? Whichever well, one. Discovery right. is a really good quality Belgian sour. Where it's like, I know this is really well made, but I'm still not quite sure whether I like it. <laughs> Enterprise is uh, a beer made by a guy in his basement who has gone online and watched a lot of beer-making videos. <laughs> and you kind of like him because you work with him, and then you leave that job in the middle and you never drink his beer again. Voyager's Coors. <laughs> Voyager is Coors Light. <laughs> uh, Deep Space Nine is an IPA because everyone I know will not shut the hell up about how great it is. <laughs> and it's bitter and unappetizing all the way down. TNG is uh, Mill Street Organic La- Lager. You know, okay. uh, comforting. Uh, you know, the, the whole reason you pick it is you don't want anything exciting. <laughs> Real Star Trek is the first good beer you ever drank. <laughs> and the animated series is your 10-year high school reunion trying to drink that same beer with your friends. <laughs> Next question. Um, are there any uh, ticks or sayings or habits that you, or, or any like design traits that you have observed players at your table or other designers that you've worked with picking up? Like, uh, is there a thing that you always say that other people now always say. Right, right. Um, I think the, the player rephrase type... The rephrase the question. Uh, are there uh, ticks or things that we've done that we've noticed other designers picking up? Um, the uh, player types in, in Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, I think, have gotten a lot of purchase and been uh, used, uh, reused by me and then by others. And so they've, uh, they're now basically uh, transformed and they're in D&D. So that's... Uh, uh, a big example of uh, something making its way into the bloodstream of gaming? I think um, in a lot of ways, uh, I can't claim credit for it, but I think I've sort of um, normalized or legitimized people setting more games in real history or real history with ghosts and uh, nonsense. Uh, I, I was the only person, maybe with one exception, to be talking about Elizabethan fantasy way back in the day in suppressed transmission, and now lots of people, uh, it shows up, it, it's now it's a common genre trope. And I can't, I didn't invent Elizabethan fantasy, Lisa Goldstein invented Elizabethan fantasy, or possibly Sir Philip Sidney invented Elizabethan fantasy, but I certainly talked it, uh, talked it up and made it sort of part of, I think, maybe a gamer bloodstream in a way that later people would say, oh, I, I, I did that. So in the same way that, you know, the... The Velvet Underground only sold 300 albums, but it was all the people who made new album, made uh, started rock bands. Um, Suppressed Transmission wasn't read by very many people, but a lot of the people who did it went out and 
Started bands. Started bands, yeah. (laughs) Because they didn't want to write after they saw what happened. Um, The uh, idea that you uh, can let the players describe things in the room and then use them to hit other people from feng shui, uh, uh, it's an example of something that now, in retrospect, seems so obvious that even I forget that I came up with it. Um, After Gumshoe came out, uh, a lot of other (coughs) investigative games uh, indicated that the really important information you should just get. Um, So I I guess there are, are, are some examples of that. Um, and of course, you know we've uh, spread uh, you know general arrogance throughout the industry. Yeah, <laughs> and everyone else was humble till we came along. Right. Yeah. So it, it's really our fault. Yeah. Uh. Today, Swedish role-playing games are celebrated all over the world, with multiple titles being translated into English and other languages. Tofa Gilbring of Askfageln has been a champion for Swedish role-playing games for three decades. Together with her husband Anders, they have published and developed games, gaming magazines, and hosted gaming events at conventions all over Sweden. But now Tova's breast cancer is back, and Anders has organized a crowdfunding campaign to buy her time. Time to make the rest of her life about more than surviving. Time to devote herself to what she loves, the creation and publication of new gaming titles. Titles like additional volumes in the Best of Phoenix series. The Choose Your Own Adventure book, Writer of the Black Sun, by Sven Harder. Second comic strip album of Ake Brazinius's Burger Barbaren. And Asarusa's Cool Keyring RPG in an English edition. The full game compact enough to fit on a keyring. And of course, a multitude of scenarios, source books, and choose your own adventures for Western, their Wild West role-playing dream project. Add some boom to Tova's ultimate blast of creative fireworks. Go to Kickstarter and search Love Tova. L-O-V-E-T-O-V-E. Or follow the link in the show notes. Uh, next question. Uh, do you have some advice uh, for a games master running a horror game, and specifically like play a, getting players to buy into the concept? Uh, okay. The question is, do we have advice for uh, a game master running a horror game, specifically for getting players to buy into the concept? Uh, the first answer, yes. It's called GURPS Horror 4th Edition. <laughs> I urge you to buy it. Um, because I still get a puling little royalty, but also because it's very good. Um, in terms of getting player buy-in, uh, that is, you've put your, your thumb right on the nub because horror doesn't work without buy-in. Most other things can work or can at least mostly work without buy-in. If people don't care about fantasy but they still like seeing things stabbed, they can play D&D and have a great time. If people um, uh, don't uh, understand your super, fan, uh, super future but they sort of, you know, they like ray guns or robots. They can play your ray gun and robot game just fine. But horror, they really have to want to play horror or else no one gets to play horror. Not even just them, but nobody because the energy of the room is wrong. Um, so the, the way that you get people to buy into it is, I think, at least at first, by very honestly saying, I would like to run a horror game. Who wants to play a horror game? And then the people whose hands don't go up, you say, okay, see you in 18 months. <laughs> um, and if you uh, 
uh, don't have the luxury of doing that or if there are people who are reluctant but you want to bring along, uh, one thing you can do is a relatively new bit of gaming technology and say that we're going to have an X card in this game. And so that's just an index card with an X on it uh, that uh, if something gets, if the horror gets too personal for you, if it hits a personal boundary where you're going beyond fun scared to actually remembering something that traumatizes you, um, hold up the X card and then you as GM, the contract is that you uh, will then dial back on that thing. Right. Or, sort or of, fade to black. At or least. fade to black or uh, you know, get that character out of that situation. Um, and that becomes, as I've learned, especially important in, uh, in Yellow King, which is, both, which is a horror game which has some degree of player narrative input. You have to be aware not only of the things that you are introducing, and you may know your player's sort of boundaries all well enough to just bring them to the level of fun scared, but then another player may bring in an element that's like, whoa, okay. Um, and so that enables the players to go, oh, okay, let's, let's dial that way back down or, or maybe uh, not do that. And so that can give people in your group who are uh, sort of interested, but you know, they don't want to be unfun scared. That gives them the, the sense of uh, you know, the safety net that they have. And so that's, that's something I would increasingly recommend. And I think uh, new generations of gamers are eventually going to just come to expect to be part of everybody's repertoire. And they'll show up and go, what, you're no, you don't have X cards? Where's your X cards? I think another thing that you can do is uh, run a uh, sort of a hybrid tone game. Uh, your Buffies, your Supernaturals, your sort of what you might call horror adventure or horror-themed adventure or monster slaying or whatever you want to call it, so that you can have all of the fun of the tropes of horror, but you don't require as much emotional investment. And most, I mean, gamers, by and large, are down for kill monsters. Um, and even if there's no stuff to take, they still like the murdering part. <laughs> so what you can do is if you run a horror adventure game every so often... You can do one where you just hit that bass a little harder, and the horror is a little louder. And again, by reading the room, by knowing your players, by judicious uh, steering away from uh, areas of real trauma, um, you can see what their response is to horror when they might not have said, yes, I volunteer to be made uh, terrified uh, for four hours every week. Um, they, but they, if they respond well to those adventures, you can then leave a narrative reason in the game uh, well, it turns out that haunted house was just one etheric window, and there, there was that map that you found in the basement. Maybe it leads to other etheric windows. And they'd be like, uh, we never want to see another etheric window. We are burning that map with sage and the head of the person who suggested we look at it. And you're like, okay, that's cool. Back to monster hunting. But if they're like, right. yeah, I'd kind of like to look through some more etheric windows. That was freaky as hell. Then you can sort of ease your game into a horror register without ever uh, necessarily leaving that safety net of, but we have guns, right? We have guns and they work a lot. Uh, next question. Uh, which one game that you didn't write has been the biggest influence on your own game? Like? Uh, which one game that uh, we didn't write has been our biggest influence on us? Um, in terms of game writing or game design, uh, I think the biggest influence on me has been uh, GURPS, just because of the modularity of it. And the, uh, uh, most of my designs are uh, clinging to the coattails of better designers. Uh, that's my comfort zone. And uh, GURPS is a great vocabulary for adding a thing to a thing. 
And even if you don't want to get all the way down into the drill bits, the way that GURPS uh, often does, if you look at the way that those pieces fit together and in theory create a unified mechanic, that I think is, is very inspirational to me. And I find myself sort of looking back at it when I do Star Trek, um, when I do uh, Gumshoe stuff, when I do Savage World stuff. Uh, when I'm do now that I'm doing Vampire, I'm looking at how does GURPS handle some of these societal questions that Vampire is part of as well. And no, it's not going to be GURPS Vampire. A, that already exists. And B, um, uh, no one would sit still for it. But that sort of concept of uh, unified feel in game design is, is a, it's something I keep uh, finding out uh, in my own work. And surprise, surprise, the one who says Call of Cthulhu is Robin. What? <laughs> um, so uh, it was uh, while uh, reading a, an early Call of Cthulhu adventure that suddenly a, a light bulb went over my head and I went, wait a minute, this is a narrative form. This is a, role playing is something you can use to tell stories and they can have a story structure and have the emotional payoff and rhythm of, and that from that one moment, you can trace pretty well every design idea uh, with the possible exception of Rune from. So that uh, one thing is the, the most, is, is the, the nub of everything that I do. Uh, next question. What ways would you like to see technology change tabletop gaming over the next 10 years? Which way would we like to see technology change role-playing over the next <coughs> 10 years? He said tabletop gaming, tabletop. but we assumed that uh, you meant role-playing. Um, uh, I, I think, first of all, I would like to see it just grow the audience, which I think it already is. Um, I'd like to see you know, it uh, uh, providing more people uh, the knowledge that the thing exists and the knowledge that there's stuff to play. And, uh, therefore, and the knowledge of what the hell this is right. and how it works. Yeah. And, um, uh, the, the, and the ability to you know, um, enter the hobby and ideally buy stuff that I do. I, I think that's the most salient thing that it can do is just increase the market and thus increase not just my paycheck, although that is a non-trivial consideration, but also increase the number of other people who can do other experimental things in the form because there's uh, you know, a richer ecosystem. And I mean, we've already seen a huge bloom uh, with the, just the dropping the barriers to entry with desktop publishing in 2000. Now that we have this new market, perhaps we'll see another bloom as uh, more nutrition gets uh, poured into the system. Um, yeah, I guess the, the obvious uh, specific applications would be making it easier to find players, right? So uh, Tinder for players. Um, uh, you know, interested in GURPS, but just casually. <laughs> Why do all the Shadowrun guys have pictures with fish? What's yeah. that about? <laughs> um, and, and also, uh, you know, as a designer, we're almost sort of at the point where we have ubiquitous mobile devices at the table, and everybody's already kind of checking Twitter while they're playing. Um, uh, We'd like to harness that behavior and, for good. Yeah, and, and <laughs> subtweeting each other. And so I would still uh, love to be able to work on a project that the actual game mechanics, game running part of it, is done by a tablet application that gives you narrative outcomes and have people get, not go, oh, I don't know about that. Uh, and that is the current reaction to a lot of people. It's like, well, I don't, but then I wouldn't know what it's doing under the hood. And it's like, well, A, we could document that for you if you'd like. Uh, and and uh, B, 
what could be going under the hood could be so much more complicated, right? That there's a big limitation when you're designing a game mechanic to, you know, how much obvious math is in it and how many factors you're taking into account uh, because a human has to operate it. But if you and just it has to be done in an amount of time that is not endless. Yes. Um, but if you can just, uh, you know, hit a button to I, uh, you know, swing my sword at the goblin, <clears throat> and then the uh, program can then, you know, take into account every single factor that could possibly relate to your swing at the goblin, and then spit out a cool narrative result of that. It's like, because of your superior strength, you're able to cloud him on the side of the head, or, you know, give you something to use as the basis of your narration. <coughs> that that can uh, give you something that has a lot of color and has a lot of fun and is faster than the jam would be and then allows the jam to concentrate on uh, the story and atmosphere and character and takes the scut work out of uh, gaming and basically could make something more complicated than champions feel as simple as gumshoe. Um, so I'd love to see that uh, finally materialize sometime. And then I'd also like to see uh, the thing that Neverwinter Nights, I guess, got close to but then didn't do and then it went away but the ability to to basically if you're on roll 20 or whatever to modularly create a dungeon from pre-existing elements and run people through a satisfying I mean it it would never be as good as bespoke dungeoning but I don't think that it's impossible to expect that something at least as good as what we could get by rolling random dice out of the back of Gary's old DMG could be done on the computer on the fly with people that you're playing with for any genre I don't think that's impossible. I don't think that's a big ask. But it seems to be that there's not a market for it, so no one has put however much money it would take to build that. And I assume that it's just going to fall out once computers become, you know, the next generation of powerful and the next generation of coders uh, who are all now growing up playing D&D are going to say, well, why don't we just automate that? Um, So I'm sure it's happening. I'm just kind of amazed it hasn't happened already. I think I've already predicted it would have happened by now. Uh, you know, when someone asked me that question 10 years ago. Right. But I assume that it's just got to happen. And the next level of mainstreamness that things could possibly get is VR, right? Uh, because uh, already, you know, escape rooms are springing up all over the place. And if VR actually fulfills the promise of some of the descriptions of how this goes, if the VR people come to Ken and I and say, do Shadows Over Innsmouth for VR, we'll... It'll be so scary, yeah. people will die. <laughs> but since they're VR people, um, uh, we'll make them pay up front. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because uh, Dennis Detwiller has all manner of uh, harsh and unkind things to say, which you can read his uh, social media for. Dennis Detwiller, the uh, uh, a third of Delta Green creation. Yes, the, the, the other possibility is Dennis's thesis was that VR will never, yeah, will always, will never be a will, thing. will always be five years away. That is the fusion, uh, the clean fusion of, uh, of gaming technology. Right. Uh, next question. What hints would you have for someone GMing Feng Shui for the first time? Okay, so what, what? hints would I have for someone uh, GMing Feng Shui for the first time? Uh, watch a bunch of uh, great Hong Kong movies listed in the filmography before you start. Uh, show selected scenes to your players. See that thing that Chow Yun-Fat does with the motorcycle? You can just, uh, when you roll, just describe that that's what you're doing or anything like that. You're as free to make up stuff at any time as what's going on the screen. And then uh, the other piece of prosaic advice is uh, if you're on iOS, use the Sylvan Master app, which will super speed up uh, combat for you as a jam. Question in the back. 
Yes, um, earlier on you mentioned about uh, Hitler searching in Finland um, or Atlantis. And well, he wanted the white Atlantis. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you Most people turn out to. You then said, I'm not Hitler. Right. I'm just wondering how many times the internet has accused you of being Hitler. <laughs> More than most people, I so, think. The, 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 the question is, uh, Ken, are you Hitler? <laughs> well, oh, no. How many times has the internet accused you of being Hitler? Yes. Uh, like I say, more times than you would think. Um, back when I made occult Nazis my thing, uh, it seemed relatively harmless. <laughs> I kind of thought that was a solved problem. But hey, um, uh, as, a, as a historian and a Calvinist, I should have known nothing's ever permanent. Um, so yes, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the question of playing around with this stuff is uh, make sure you play with it. And that is what they didn't want then and it's what they don't want now. So. The covert agents of Delta Green fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. Your players are those agents. As their GM, you need to handle them. That's why you need the Delta Green Handler's Guide, the game's game moderator-only rulebook. Including such essential eyes-only features as... A history of the world of Delta Green, from pre-human times to the present day, with campaign tips and scenario seeds on every page. Sinister rituals, unnatural entities, and reality-shattering great old ones. New threats to shock and terrify your agents. The secretive Delta Green organization in deep and disturbing detail. And the other ruthless conspiracy that claims it is the real Delta Green. Oh, those jerks again. Ah. Also includes Operation Fulminate, the Sentinels of Twilight, a sample scenario ready to play. Your players, they are the apocalypse. You, you moderate their apocalypse. With the Delta Green Handler's Guide. From Arc Dream Publishing. Uh, in the back. The celebrity GM is the current weird product of where our industry is at the moment. What will the next weird product of it be? The celebrity GM is the current weird product of where our industry is. What is the next weird product? Oh, so is this celebrity DM is in like Deborah Ann Wall playing uh, running no, D&D? Or no, like people like Matt Mercer becoming celebrities for running D&D. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So what would be even weirder than that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, and before that, I would have said Deborah Ann Wall playing D and D, but apparently yeah. that already happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, now let's see. Uh, I think the next weird thing would be like uh, corporate sponsorship, <laughs> right? Like like a NASCAR driver. Yeah. Like you show up to to run your um, uh, your uh, feng shui campaign, and there you are with your um, uh, uh, the the big uh, what's the big uh, Alibaba logo on you, and um, uh, your um, uh, your uh, Samsung logos, and you're sitting down there and you're running it. And this game is sponsored by Mountain Dew, slamming just like a Gramthar's hammer. You know, <laughs> I think that would be delip- That would be absolutely weird. That that would still free. I am not yet capable of processing. Uh, I was at PAX Unplugged, and PAX is a, is a big show, and it's full of uh, very um, uh, 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 online-y uh, type uh, gamers, even at the Unplugged show. And someone said to me, in a straight, ve- in a straight 
way like this was a thing you would say, Matt Mercer can't walk across this floor without being mobbed. And my brain was like, Matt Mercer? Who is, oh, that guy, the critical role guy. And then it took me like, I don't know, it seemed like 40 minutes to process the fact that that could be a sentence, you would say. So I'm still not, you know, woke to the actual weird thing that's going on and has been going on for three years. Um, and so, you know, no doubt uh, some, Mountain Dew is already sponsoring Shadowrun somewhere, and I don't know about it. Uh, next question. In common with a lot of gamers, I buy way more gaming books than I'll ever get to run or use. Uh, are there any particular RPG books or supplements that stick out for you as great reads? Uh, so the question is, what would we recommend as great reads if you're just going to buy something to, to, read. Maybe, to read it and maybe not play it? Well, obviously anything written by Robin or myself, <laughs> because uncompromising prose style is what you're buying it for, right? I mean... At that point, you know, who cares? Um, I would say also uh, Unknown Armies is a great read. Uh, the, the Delta Green books are, are pretty great reads. Uh, Tynes and Detwiller are both great, great writers with a, with a good worldview. Greg Stolze has a great bleakness that I think comes out in his game, uh, uh, his game rules, much less his game uh, prose. Um, so I, 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 those are, are certainly very enjoyable. I like the narrative voice of 13th Age. I like uh, the sort of Rob and Jonathan uh, banter. In, in, in that, uh, that you can sort of tell, uh, maybe it's just because I know both of them, but I, mean, I think you can really sort of see that that game bounces along in a way that other large fantasy books uh, do not necessarily. Um, uh, this is, I mean, it's, it sounds super incestuous when I say these things, but part of it is because I know they're great reads because I, I read them. And so I can't really recommend, you know, X game way over here that I haven't read because it's like, well, I suspect that's a great read because they're a nice person. Um, Vincent Baker's games are all great reads. He's, a, he's another really good, engaging writer. Um, uh, with a with a with a, a, a kind of a, a dry uh, a self-deprecating wit in person that when you read it in game terms, it, it's like if Beethoven were dry and self-deprecating, except he's not. So it's like it's it's a fun little tonal uh, thing to to read Vincent stuff. Uh, you named just about everybody. Uh, still close to home, I have to admit, is uh, uh, Gar's uh, Henrihan's Cthulhu City. Oh yeah, is a lot of fun and uh, great to imagine. If you enjoy the closet drama experience of reading a game book and imagining what you would be able to do with it, if only you had enough gamers and time, uh, you can really imagine a, a lot of crazy new gaming experiences out of Cthulhu. City. And and I and, I, and I'm uh, good friends with James Wallace, and so whenever I read anything James Wallace has written, I hear him reading it. So uh, aside from the, the, the manifest qualities of his prose, it's just fun to have James Wallace talking in your ear, um, especially if you're actually far away. Um, <laughs> and, and so uh, I, I enjoy reading. Obviously, uh, Munchausen is, is a magnificent masterpiece of, of prose in game design, but all of his, uh, his writing for rules is sort of uh, in that arch, uh, Wallet, Wallensian tone, and I enjoy it. Oh, and uh, coming out soon by Chris Spivey and company, uh, Harlem Unbound, uh, which uh, take, is a Cthulhu uh, uh, source book uh, with adventures set uh, in Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. So it fuses Afro-American history uh, with Lovecraftiana. Yeah, I haven't read it. I just, you know, I have the PDF or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's so uh, strong. Uh, very cool, yeah. yeah. Uh, next question. We've talked about celebrity, you've talked about celebrity GMs and there's been a lot of people watching games on YouTube and Twitch. How would you go about designing a game to be watched by more people than are actually playing? What would you add to a game to make it watchable? 
Uh, it's called drama system. Uh, what would we do to uh, uh, design a game for Twitch? And that we just need to hook up Twitch group with drama system. It's perfect for that. I also think uh, feng shui would be a great... Uh, I mean, Robin's games tend to be very visual anyway, just because of your background and uh, <laughs> attitude. So, um, yeah, the, the thing to make a game visual is to make sure that there's things for people who act out to do in it, and that usually involves uh, something loud uh, and uh, rule-breaking or loud and dramatic, and that's feng shui and drama system right there. Um, going back to Nazis... <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah, we haven't heard enough about Nazis recently. It's, it's just basically when you read things uh, like the New Apocrypha or when you read about them missing rockets because they were calculating the convexity of Earth instead of the... Uh, sorry, concavity of Earth instead of convexity and those sort of huge blunders. How did they ever get anything done? So the question uh, is, given that they're stupid Nazis, <laughs> how did the stupid Nazis get anything done? Mostly for their occult focus. Mostly for their occult focus. I mean, they were dumb for a lot of reasons. The occult, I mean, th th that's a thing that, that I, as much as anyone else, fall into the trap of, is you read about you know, Himmler having his little occult uh, hobby or the uh, 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 SOE having their, you know, fake almanac section and you imagine, well, that must be what they did all day. And it's like, no, Himmler was out, like, planning the mass murder of millions of people as well as collecting Atlantis artifacts. He, he multitasked. Um, so the Nazis were bad at literally everything except massacring millions of people. That was what they really buckled down and got right. But if you look at uh, their, um, uh, their, their uh, means of, of waging war their um, uh, production, their economics, everything was just cobbled together by a bunch of grade schoolers. It was terrible. The much vaunted German efficiency that kept the whole world on its heels from 14 to 18 was absent because the Nazis overplanned everything. They uh, set up a million competing bureaucracies, all of which jammed each other up. It, it's, um, uh, it is, as you say, astonishing they got as far as they did. And they, and they did it basically for, uh, I would say, uh, two or three reasons. Uh, the most uh, important being that they were fighting at the beginning demoralized foes. Uh, France didn't want to go back to a world war for the obvious reason that they'd lost their entire generation of young men the last time they did this for literally nothing. The, uh, the, the, the Italians, um, uh, you know, picked the winning side, they thought, this time. Uh, the British, you know, had to be basically drag-kicking and screaming into war. Um, and uh, Stalin was like, not Hitler's ally. <laughs> so that's how that works, is that they're fighting, you know, basically the, the bum of the month club. Um, and then the second thing is there is just a such a thing as geopolitics. I mean, Germany is really well positioned uh, in terms of coal, steel, uh, position on the continent, large population, uh, heavy industry, all those other things to build a big armored uh, to, to fight a modern war. Um, what they're not positioned to do is fight a modern war against a continental superpower, and when they fought two of them at once, oh, guess what? Um, and, and then uh, the third thing that they had, I, I think, going on was that uh, just the luck of the draw that whenever a military revolution happens, someone's the first guy to do it. And the, you can see the very beginnings of the Blitzkrieg in 1918 with the, the Nazi, with the, 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 what they called the stormtroopers even then, uh, which was a combined arms assault, uh, mechanized forces, and uh, 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 heavy artillery, uh, 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 mo multiple mobile machine guns uh, moving across uh, the, the Western Front. And that's that last 
uh, attack that nearly takes them to the Marne again in 1918, and they're doing it before America can get into the war and crush them. Uh, obligatory Canadian moment. The term stormtrooper was invented by Germans to describe Canadians. Carry on. All right. <laughs> and that, and, and that uh, mode of combined arms assault was invented by uh, a, a German a general named von Houdier, and it was begun actually in uh, the East, and it destroyed the uh, Russians in uh, Austria, and then they moved it onto the Western Front. Um, and so someone, whoever used that first, would win a bunch of battles before everyone said, oh, here's how to fight it. And that's just luck of the draw. It's like, you know, the Swedes were the first guys to have a uh, fully professional um, uh, uh, musket and ox cart army, so they won a bunch of battles. Uh, the uh, uh, Japanese were the first people to learn how to fight carrier warfare, so they won a bunch of battles. That's just, you know, how it happens. Uh, it falls out. If, if Charles de Gaulle had taken over a fascist France in 1939 and built that, he would have won a bunch of battles. Right, and that's why aggressors seem like they know what they're doing initially, because they're the ones starting the war, right? <laughs> Normal, regular people just want to, you know, have a sandwich and drink some wine. They don't want to be dragged into some war. So you're always, you know, it's the, the crazy people who start the wars who yeah. get to innovate these uh, new things, and it makes them briefly seem uh, competent when, as you suggest... Uh, you know, they're just uh, highly motivated. Yeah, right. <laughs> or, and in this case, they were highly motivated to do a whole bunch of things, but mostly just slaughter a bunch of people. Um, and, and again, that, that literally is the only thing they did efficiently. If you look at any of the uh, academic histories of uh, the Third Reich, uh, organizational histories of it, everything else is just a snarl of, of misery. But, you know, everyone buckles down and builds those death camps like it's a frickin' victory garden. Uh, so good for you, Nazis? No, not so much. Uh, yeah, basically there's, you know, every society, about 10% of the people would like to murder the other 90% of the people. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just a, a matter of human, re human resources at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. And if you yeah. activate them, it's going to be shocking for a while. Yeah. And then, you know, horrible things happen and the continent get, gets washed with blood again and gradually uh, sanity uh, is forced to reassert itself at a, yes. at a horrible, terrible price. So, uh, welcome everybody to this fun event. Yeah. <laughs> hey kids, Yeah. don't launch a global war or commit genocide. Yeah. yeah. TV uh, cinema are really good at bringing uh, strong visual motifs to what you're watching. For all its faults, like the Defenders, really good use of color on the screen when you're watching it. Have you found any good ways, I mean, because it's very verbal and descriptive media, or bringing, you know, strongly bringing a motif or a visual sense into an ongoing campaign? Uh, so the, the question is, how do you uh, uh, compete with uh, TV and movies' ability to impose a strong visual sense and art direction and production design on a campaign? And uh, I think we're just in the infancy of being able to do that in tabletop role-playing, just because our art budgets are nowhere near <coughs> as high as the amount of money that is spent to make even an inexpensive uh, movie or TV show. Um, and so, uh, for example, I'm an artist starting to come in on Yellow King, and one of the things that I have the luxury of doing with that is since there's four discrete books and we're uh, paying more than what Pelgrane usually pays for uh, a smaller number of really great color illustrations uh, and then the rest of the visual uh, quality of the books will be taken over by the graphic design is that I was able to uh, hire a different artist for each of the four books 
and work with them the way that I would, that a production designer, that a director would work with their production designer and say, here's a bunch of art reference for this book, here's a bunch of art reference for this book. I picked four artists with very distinct styles from one another. Because normally, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, a D&D book winds up being sort of a mix of different styles and... Uh, it's interesting that you know even the late D and D five has more of a unified visual sense. I guess Pathfinder also super does that, and so uh, it's just a matter, I think, of the publishers having the wherewithal to think more in those terms of creating a thematic unity and what what sort of set of emotions and feelings, even sort of subtle ones, evoked by color and a particular color palette. Uh, are you going to put in a book? And that's uh, going to uh, depend. Partly we have that because we can kickstart big things and have a bigger art budget for it. Uh, partly I think it's about training gamers to appreciate the value that art carries. And I think that's a generational thing too, where the original people who you know got excited by the visual look of Palladium uh, <laughs> go, well, I don't know why you need illustrations and why, why is that... Type bigger than that spiral-bound courier printed arguing grimoire was good enough for me. Yeah, um, but uh, you know we're starting to see things like uh, you know a lot of stuff coming out of Europe has a real uh, sort of uh, visual unity to it that the rest of us are going to have to uh, catch up to. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsor: Atlas Games, Hell Brain Press, Asphagelm, Dark Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Heights. And he's at Robin D. Law. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>